Hey, welcome back to another episode of the Mortgage Impact Podcast. I'm your host today, Adam O'Daniel, and we are joined by Julian Hebron. Julian is the founder of The Basis Point. He is a mortgage and real estate veteran. He's been involved with uh, important, um, wonderful brands like Lone Depot, Wells Fargo, UBS, uh, and now has founded his own consultancy in our business. And, and Julian, we're just really honored that you're here today, and we're excited to talk about the economy, the pandemic, the, uh, the situation loan officers find themselves in and in these unique times. And uh, so, man, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks, Adam. It's great to be here, man. I know that uh, it's more fun face-to-face, but I love what you guys have done with this pod over the last couple of years. And so it's fun to be back on. It's, it's, it's been too long. Yeah, man, it really is. Um, we, we joke around a lot about, we started this as an experiment. Like we went two years ago, uh, Jake Failing and I, uh, who is a co-host on this thing, kind of the driving force behind it, we we just said, you know what, let's just stop talking about it. Let's just do it. And we started booking a few people and throwing it out there. And um, and now, you know, we have a, a really loyal following and, and great folks like you who agreed to kind of come on periodically and, and share. And that's been great. And um, who knew that this form of communication would become the norm uh, when we started this thing, that these face-to-face Zoom meetings and everything being recorded virtually and shared uh, would be how we would survive for three months. But that's, that's been the reality for all of us. Well, and what's interesting too is like it, doesn't it feel like it's been longer than three months? It does, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's, uh, you know, what's interesting is the basis point has been around since I, so, okay, the last crisis hit the mortgage industry in August of 07. Right. I was writing a weekly newsletter uh, as an originator back then. And it was two paragraphs. It was on Fridays and it was intended to inform both um, customers as well as especially realtors was the primary audience actually at the time to say, here's what's going on with the, with the local housing market, San Francisco and the Bay area in general. Um, And then here's what's going on with the rate market. It was supposed to be short after between August and November of 07, I started writing really long ones. Cause I'm like, all right, we got to explain what's going on here. You know, cause it was, it was resoundingly like when this hit, yes. right. Whereas like, oh my gosh, the market's freezing up. It's chaos. And so I not only started getting a bunch of, you know, mainstream media followers, but, but it, more critically to your core audience started getting deals out of it. Right. Yeah. And so I bought the domain for the basis point in November, 2007. I launched the site. I hired a developer off Craigslist. I launched the site in 08 and then basically ran it um, predominantly as an originator, a producing manager, eventually a non-producing manager as a mortgage banker for all those years as a way of communicating with my audience. So you could say that I was one of the early pioneers in a lot of the stuff that gets talked about more and more today. But what's interesting, going back to your point, is I never did audio video, right? It was always predominantly written. And so actually during this pandemic, I I finally started getting my act together with like getting proper mics and proper lighting and all the stuff you need to like be on camera and sound decent and be credible on going on a show like yours where people can actually hear you and it's not all tinny and everything. So anyway, it's been a, it's been a learning uh, lockdown for me, let's just say as well. Yeah, it really has. Um, it's interesting how 
crisis creates um, in so many different ways, right? I mean, I, you, you talk about the basis point and starting in a time of, you know, kind of the prior mortgage crisis we had. Uh, my story is similar. You know, I, my big kind of break in my career, if you want to call it that, was getting a job covering financial services in Charlotte, North Carolina, which is where Bank of America at the time, yeah, uh, well as Wachovia, we're all headquartered. It was the second largest banking city in the country. Um, and I probably had no business getting the job at that point in my career, but I did. Um, and, and it was an awesome opportunity. And um, I think three weeks after I took the job, um, Wachovia teetered on the edge of failure. They lost their CEO. Bob Steele stepped in to run the company. Um, that fast forward a couple of months, uh, Wells Fargo steps in and buys Wachovia at the brink. Then there's the B of A Merrill Lynch thing. And, you know, I'm just like this wide eyed kid that has no idea what he's doing. Um, yeah. But it, it threw me into an opportunity and I, I learned and, and grew from that. And so um, I think we're in a, another similar time. This, the forces in our economy right now are completely different than the forces back then. But there is a lot of upheaval, a lot of change, but a lot of opportunity and, and things that are going to come out of this that are going to change us. Um, and I guess maybe, maybe we can start there. What, do you, what are you seeing right now as some of these forces at work that are going to change our industry going forward, that are going to create these new opportunities or new challenges that we're going to have to, have to meet as we, as we move forward from here? Well, yeah, so I, I think that um, I always like to start from the perspective of the consumer, right? And then yeah. we'll loop it back to the industry. But to your point, um, I, was, I was sort of in that, like, I'm a real grown up in my career at the time. I had been at it for a little bit. I had already made a career change from the money management business. And I wasn't that, actually, 07 was the first time I ever made President's Club as an originator. So I was just finding my feet as an originator. I started originating in 03. And that was for me the time where I'm like, all right, man, I'm an adult and this is real and I'm going to make it. Right. Um, and it sounds like the same thing happened to you. Yeah. Right. Yep. Everyone, you know, the joke up until I think COVID hit was always like, oh, millennials are like sensitive and entitled. No. Look what they've been through so far right. now. And if you didn't believe it before, believe it now. Yeah. They're full grown adults. They are real. And they are now have dealt with some of the craziest, heaviest stuff you could imagine in both um, career, personal life, yeah. economy. Um, this is to say nothing of the, of the very profound and critical social issues that we're now uh, tacking on to what has already been a, a very intense 2020. Um, so millennials are controlling the economy and they're responsible and they know what's up. Likewise, Gen Z has just started working, right? Yep. yep. And so these folks, I like to say, okay, Fannie and Freddie were taken over by Treasury on a Sunday. And that Sunday is when my wife and I went to the hospital to give birth to our only son. Mm -hmm. And I was writing about Treasury taking over Fannie and Freddie on a cot in the hospital. So for me, that was ultra formative. Those same formative moments have been happening for the last couple of years and most especially in 2020 with Z and millennials. And they are the real deal, man. And they are gonna know how to deal with this. But one of the things to your question that I think is really, really important is home probably starts to mean a little bit more than it did before. Yes. Because this has taught us like, hey, 
if I can have a little bit of a lifestyle, but still prove to the organization that I serve that I can be productive, then I better be able to be productive at home. And it just redefines what home means. So I think that this is a huge one um, where home is work and life and everything and it's blended and we're a digital culture, we're on all the time, but it can work. And I think home and the home ownership ecosystem and vision that our industry serves is maybe more powerful than ever. Yeah, that's a, man. I think so many people can relate to that and attest to that because we have just spent the last 90 days trapped in our homes, most of us. Right. And so like, I know even my wife and I have had, so, um, you know, we're, we're millennials uh, on the chart. Uh, I don't feel like a millennial in, in, as far as the stereotype goes. Right. I mean, I'm the, I've, I've owned two homes. I have three kids. I'm my conversations are not the millennial things that you associate in the media, but to your right. point, that's because millennials are not who you think they are anymore. Um, I don't know that they all, ever were. Either. No, they're not. No, you know, not. this is my wife and I have said this for a long time. It's like when you're in your early twenties, like there's a certain set of behaviors and it's universal to yes. all generations. Right. Great. Point. But as you come up and get more serious and experience very, very serious macro issues. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you, as I said, like I, nobody, I've never bought into it, but especially now, anyone that wants to say that now, it's just totally got their head in the sand. Yeah. You know, it's a great point. And, um, and so your, your, your takeaway is, is spot on. I mean, all we've done for the last 90 days is assess our home situation and what are we going to do long-term? And if the kids uh, homeschooling becomes more of a permanent or semi-permanent thing, like does our home meet the need for that? Does that, does it suit me working from home and doing these kind of activities from my home office and so on and so forth. So as the consumer starts to move their mindset to the importance of home, uh, let's, let's kind of spin that into our industry. Where does that start to change the, the way that we interact with those consumers as, as lenders and marketers and, and folks in our industry? Yeah. So I think that, you know, I spent a lot of time in the industry on the originations side, right? Um, but in the past couple of years, really, uh, you know, uh, not quite four years, spent a lot more time getting a lot more serious about the entire life cycle. And you can't get more serious about the entire life cycle if you don't also start thinking about servicing, which is in the origination world, you know, the, the, in the ecosystem, obviously, originations are the hunters. Yeah. Um, servicing should be the retainers. But if we look at the Black Knight stats that come out every month, basically, you know, about four of every five refinances go to a different institution. Right. And I just, I, I, to me, that is, that is the big part. Originations and servicing finally come together. A few things had to happen to do that. You had to get the, the, the digital capabilities in place on the origination side. Now the consumer is trained on that. We had to do that because entertainment and retail did it. And the consumer's like, okay, I better get this in my mortgage now, or I'm going to go find somebody that does have it. So that's been happening the last six years. We know that, right? Um, the same thing, thankfully, is finally happening in servicing where it's like, I want more than just my statement. You know, I want to be able to, if I can, you know, managed my home ownership experience via 
my servicer and I, a consumer could care less and doesn't know the difference between our fancy origination and servicing words, right? They just know they really liked working with their movement LO or, or whatever LO they worked with, right? Yep. And they're like, I want I, I, their expectation is like, that their assumption is like, that's how it's going to be. But if servicing um, either is sold and or, you know, there's not proper engagement from the original originator, the loan officer, that stuff ends up going away, you know? And so I think we're finally getting their servicing technology. Um, the base point spends a fair amount of time focused on that area right now. And it's really, really interesting. Um, and it's finally coming around. So you don't have to, lose your customers to the portals because I go to a portal because I want to see what my home might be worth. And then I'm going to get picked off either via a realtor or a mortgage lender relationship that's tied to that. Yeah. Um, Great point. I think our industry is getting better at it. I think loan officers are incredibly astute at social um, as individuals but I do believe that the organizations that support those loan officer sales forces do have to keep getting better at better at these enterprise tools that let them do the retention better because social marketing is still mostly an originations exercise. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about that because I think that's a huge shift that we're going to see. So, um, you know, the economics have changed over the last few months to, to bring this merger together where originators are becoming servicers and they're retaining more of those servicing rights. And, and that's important to the consumer for all the reasons you just laid out Yeah. Um, for the loan officer and for these big brands that employ the loan officer though, the marketing systems and platforms and strategies have all been built around origination. And then we move on to the next customer. Right. And so now you're talking about retaining a relationship for five, 10, 20, who knows, maybe 30 years if they stay in that home the whole time. Um, we know that that's valuable and we talk about, Oh, this is great. Now we get to retain this relationship. But I think there's a little bit of a reality check, right? That like, yeah, but the way we have done business in the past was not really built to maintain that relationship over time. So I guess my question is what are some things that we're going to have to change, whether it's systems or strategies to be successful as companies that once were primarily originators that now have to retain that relationship over many years. Yeah. So, I mean, the first one, and this for, especially for your core core audience um, of originators, you know, I won't go deeply into the weeds on like enterprise solutions and stuff yeah. like that, because that, 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 that's, I have some passion around that at the moment, but, um, but, but to answer the question for the originations community, yeah. but taking, but t trying to tell them something they don't know <laughs> is, um, what I see right now, again, is this great, wonderful push towards social-driven marketing. But again, to me, that's the originations component. If we had another loan officer or two today with us as like a panel, I'm sure I would get backed down on that to an extent. Yeah. But I still think that is that hunter yes. mentality of like, let's bring them in but just speaking from my own origination experience and running origination teams for years, it's always about that. And it's a little bit less about like, what are you doing once you have them? So there's basics, right? Like does your organization 
allow the loan officer to be the one who's front and center if they are retaining servicing or is it the org itself and it's 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 just the organizational branding rather than the joint loan officer organization branding on all servicing materials whether digital or paper statements that's like one of the sort of the basics basics um but to me educating um folks on you know giving the consumer the ability to engage with the home right because i have kind of like these core things that i started the year with with my housing wire column where i'm like you know you you have to have instant yeah we have to get all the way to an instant approval we have to get all the way to actionable valuation and then the third one was customer acquisition i called it like the three front uh, the three front war for housing fintech in 2020. Yep, I remember. Right? Yep. And so, so just going on like the actionable valuation part, right? Um, you have to be able to, I think that institutions that aren't able to provide the, the portal, if you will, for their borrowers um, are going to struggle with retention because I'm just going to go to anywhere I can to get my value as a consumer and I'm going to do it with or without you. And if you're not in front of me with that all the time, um, I'm going to, I'm going to struggle. So I, I know that there's tools out there. I know a lot of your and your listeners as well as the movement LOs, like, you know, they get it and they know how to do this. I don't think the enterprises have embraced it that much and what i mean is the originators the companies that the lo's all work for right i don't i think that those part the there's still some skepticism of like is it worth it or not am i going to have adoption or not they still are like kind of like are do we even have enough adoption on on pos systems and all the other you know lo adoption is always the big one right right right. and so these enterprise decisions that happen um to make decisions of what tools are we going to give to the sales force that becomes a thing Right. But um, part two of that is not just the tool itself, but is the valuation actionable? Um, Meaning if you're showing that, is it creating more harm than good? Like Zillow, as an example, has a 7% margin of error. Right. So it's very easy for an LO to be like, yep, I good that you kind of got a feel for it on Zillow, but let me just educate you a little bit because that's not the real value. Right. If the loan officer's tool that's being provided by their org is able to do that for them, I think that's a huge one. Backing up for a second to instant approvals, obviously the SECURE Act is a huge deal. The SECURE Act, for any of your listeners who don't know, was just the, the, the official legislation that takes us from like 24 states that can allow remote online notarization to everybody and like actually make e-closing real because that's the last mile. If yeah. everything else, I mean, I just signed my own refi. I'm guessing you probably yeah. did too recently. I did. I did. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and if the last mile is paper, um, we're not there yet, you gotcha. know? Um, and so instant approval still has a little way to go, a ways to go going, co- connecting the valuation part to that. I think we have made progress because, PIWs, in fact, COVID accelerated that where it's like, hey, if we have social distancing, like the, you know, 10%-ish amount of PIWs that come in on deals like has gone up substantially. Um, And that's largely the agencies being like, hey, let's make some accommodations because 
we can't get appraisers to every every property and we already have the risk if it's a refi you know right, right. um so so we're making progress there um but systemically safe progress is is really what it comes down to where you can't fully automate you know valuation without it without it being protective of the system as a whole yeah. and that goes down to accuracy if it's accurate enough to not be overstretching then it's usually accurate enough to be if you will actionable yeah. i'll give one more i know i'm going on but i could give one more example there yeah please do would be home equity has just not been a thing even the loans, I mean, even yeah. though we have record equity, right? Why is that? It has to do with the fact that home equity loans are a pain in the ass, you know? I mean, they're just, they're brutal and no loan officer wants to spend their time on it. But as a customer engagement mechanism, what ends up happening is that the balance sheet institutions will take that business from the non-banks because they'll do it. And if they get your HELOC, they're like more likely to grab your first at some point too. So I know that HELOCs aren't fun, um, but if we get better on the valuation part to make it easier, it's just to me, HELOC is customer engagement. It's not this giantly profitable thing, but it is customer engagement, you know? Right. I think it's critical. So yeah. anyway. No, that's good. I If I can recap, those because I think that was really good. I mean, you're, you're basically saying there's there's kind of three things that we all need to be paying attention to in this new integrated originator servicing world. And that is, you know, the basics like, you know, do you have a joint statement where it's the LO branded with the originator brand, right? Um, number So cover those basics. Number two, like, do you have that portal experience where somebody can come in and we have active uh, evaluate, or, uh, valuations and um, a portal experience for that consumer? And then number three, I think, is, is spot on, man. Equity, we are in this t time of record equity, um, and you just don't see a lot of movement there, uh, at least on our kind of non-bank lender side of things. And there's a real opportunity. So love those three points. I hope if you're at home listening or whatever, jot those down. Those are things you want to start having conversations about in your organization. And the best part for LOs is that what's happening is that there are these challenger banks and the basis point spends a lot of time you know, in that space as well. Yeah. And what's happening is they're like, they'll just make those loans uncollateralized, right? It's like, I won't name names to kind of call out the guilty, but I will say this, that there are challenger banks that will sort of market a quote unquote home equity loan, but technically it's not securitized by the property and it enables them to do it super fast. But the advantage for a mortgage LO is that if you look at the pricing on that stuff, I mean, it's like credit card level pricing. It it's not quite that bad, but it's close, yeah. man. It's yeah, absurd. It's and, you know, if you're prime plus, you know, zero to a small 2% margin on a traditional HELOC, it is still worth it, man. And so that's that's a soapbox for me. So let's move on because I could go on and on All right. on that one. We'll 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 uh, we'll pull the soapbox away and let you yes. uh, let you uh, catch your breath on that. So hey, um, Julian, we we have joked around uh, a little bit uh, over the last few weeks and months about this idea of like the F word. It seems like everything in the economy right now is being driven, or in the mortgage economy is being driven by these F words. You got forbearance. We've got the Fed. We've got what's going on with Fannie and Freddie. Um, man, you, you follow this stuff really closely. You do a nice job of um, sharing insight on your Twitter feed. Where do you see this economy headed? And especially as it relates to those big 
uh, F words that we've been dealing with lately here uh, in the mortgage space. Sure. I'll do, let me do some, some forbearance stuff first. I think okay. it goes to the other ones because, yeah. you know, and we could add FHFA to that as well. Yep. That's um, right. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so the policy response has been incredibly astute on this. Yeah. Okay. In 08, in the aftermath of 08, I should say, you had to be late for 90 days before you could even be considered for a loan modification. This came out in two phases. Phase one, CARES said 12 months, you can, you can do it for 12 months. Most institutions only allow the forbearance, the initial forbearance for 90 days. We're coming around on that 90 day mark, July 1, right? Yep. Yep. We'll start to get a feel for how many people are really gonna need extensions to October. But right now, according to the MBA, 8.53% as of uh, yesterday, are in forbearance, um, not a, as it, it went up really fast, but it leveled off pretty yeah. fast. And that's not a terrible number considering that we also had 43 million jobless claims in the last 12 weeks, if, right? If I, can, if I can interject, I'm sorry to interrupt yeah. you, but um, just gut check, where do you think that number's headed? Do you think we stay in that range or do you think there's a swing one way or the other? It's already coming down the jobless claims. Um, yeah. And I'll get to that when we do Outlook stuff, okay. but let's just do the, the Fs first, yeah. if you will. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so then a couple weeks ago, and this is critical. Um, so first of all, April to April, that's the, the CARES mandated forbearance period. Um, but then what got added to that, because there was all this concern about liquidity and some of these right. other things. So right. they provided some, some liquidity um, support for for servicers not to be too concerned if some of these become protracted but most importantly is i'm out of work from april to july i'm good i'm getting my check-in from my servicer and i feel like i'm okay but i'm only going to be okay if you're not going to hit me for those three payments right when i you know come off of this in july that's right and a couple weeks ago is when the fhfa said okay yes you can have that come at the end of the loan, whether that's a refi or a sale, right? Yeah. That, in essence, combined with the fact that you can extend for three more increments of 90 days past July if you're a borrower who's really kind of having a, a, an extra tough situation, I think is going to drastically mute what was once a, you know, deep concern about how, how far we plunge into foreclosure, right? I agree. I agree. It's huge. The reason that's important to touch first is that then informs the economic outlook, right? So Goldman Sachs's famous, um, now famous GDP projection, <clears throat> projection was um, on a uh, you know a minus thirty four percent GDP um, for Q two. We're in Q two. We're in the last month of it right now. Um, but then you have plus twelve and plus nineteen percent in Q three and Q four. Or respectively to bounce off of that so that you could end the year at somewhere like minus five or six percent year over year GDP, which considering how, how um, profound this lockdown affected the economy, that's a pretty decent scenario. So I'll pause there if you have follow-ups, but then we can keep going into, you know, um, new and existing home sales and mortgage originations. Yeah, no, I think, I think you hit on it, right? These, these recent developments, um, were incredibly important to provide us with clarity on how this is all going to shake out because we're no longer looking at that three month cliff 
um, that I think some of us were worried about even just a few weeks ago. Um, exactly. I mean, that's just, um, you hit the nail on the head with that. So, so then if, if we're looking at a, at a, at a forbearance rate right now, that's in that 8% range, um, you know, I, nobody has a crystal ball, but considering the, the, the chances of a protracted kind of recovery on this as, as we don't just immediately get everybody back to work, it takes time. Yeah. Um, you know, do you think that, that we see some leveling off or is there a chance still that that number could continue to edge up as maybe we had people that thought they could be okay. And now they're realizing like, they're just not going to be able to hold on. I, you know, I don't want to um, beat common refrains, but there one refrain that I do agree with that's pretty common right now is like, again, minus, you know, excuse me, 43 million jobless claims in a 12 week period. We're not going to regain those as fast. Right. Um, we talk about how home has changed. I think restaurants, hospitality, the community businesses, yes. some of that may also change and it's a little early for that. Yeah. Certain types of businesses might in fact say, you know what, like we're going to, um, go without space. Certain commercial districts of a lot of towns might yeah. therefore have commercial, uh, slow slow down there which then impacts the the jobs that are in that area and it impacts the surrounding businesses we're not going to lunch at the at the corner places anymore because we're not going to work as much right right so nobody knows that yet i i think it's too early okay um so i but 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 here's how i've always let core housing stats kind of guide my version of the outlook um and and you're crew can take this or leave it, but here it is. When you look at the stats on how many homes new and existing are sold every year, it's roughly 90, 10 existing and new percent, right? And it's about 6 million, okay? That's kind of what it is every year. Yeah. And when you look at where we're going to be, um, and forgive me if I'm looking down a little bit for those who are watching video instead <laughs> of listening, um, you know, we'll be at about 5.8-ish, 5.8 million uh, existing and new homes for 20. And then for 21 and 22, we're starting to get to like that that 5.9-ish um, type of range. These change, these projections do right. change. But even with all that's been said and done, the opportunity set for originators from a purchase standpoint yeah. is the same. As you know, it's just the skew of refi versus purchase that changes. But with that said, we're projected to do two and a half trillion this year in both purchase and refi. Um, it's going to be the biggest year ever. Yeah. Um, well, that's not true because like we we hit like some like three ish numbers in the in the pre 08 years. True. True. However, um, here's what is most interesting to me. Last year we did one point. Two seven trillion in purchases as an industry. This year, we're still expected to do about one point two five, and next year, we're expected to do um, just under one point four in purchases. So, if you have your head in the game, and I know your listeners do, because people that listen to podcasts like this have their shit together. Yep. Like the purchase opportunity doesn't change, and in fact, it grows. Yep. Man, I th I'm so glad you made that point. I think that is lost in all of the refi headlines that we've been seeing lately is like the fact that uh, the data suggests that our purchase market this year has held up much better than maybe what a lot of people expected. And, and 
it's starting to look pretty bright as we look uh, to the horizon of 21 and into 22. And that's the thing is I know a lot of your folks track the, the real time data yeah. and you're absolutely right. It's been, um, it's, it's been quite favorable in terms of just how fast we're coming out of it. So I thought I would just add those, those bigger picture stats yeah. to stuff. Cause I know like I don't hear about it as much and that's the stuff I try to tout for an audience like yours, because it's, it's just a way of saying, Hey, originators out there, if your head is in the game, your purchase opportunity set is growing in the second half of this year and the next two years. So keep your head in the game and you will win. It's awesome, man. All right. We've got five or 10 minutes left, Julian. So I've, I've got one more kind of economic question and then, um, and then we'll move into a couple of kind of closing thoughts, but um, we, we picked maybe the worst timing to record this episode because while we're chatting, I think the Fed is, is going to be putting out a, its, uh, its statement today. Um, so we haven't, I haven't had a chance to look at that yet. But when you look at the, the actions the Fed has taken to prop up and, and accommodate uh, the markets and our economy in general, I know we've just dug into some housing stuff, but in general, yeah. um, how would you rate the, the Fed's action this far? And, and kind of what do, you, what do you see as kind of the next steps that we might expect out of the Federal Reserve? I think I'm going to pull up a quote um, from Jay Powell <clears throat> that he had said, um, I'll give you the exact date on March 26th. When it comes to this lending, this was, you know, some of the stimulus that they had started, you know, when it comes to this lending, we're not going to run out of ammunition. That doesn't happen. I think that sums up my answer, which is that the Fed has decided that their dual mandate of um, low inflation and full employment is um, something that is skewing toward full employment at this time. Um, when we had the 08 crisis and we had a different form of unprecedented um, stimulus in the form of QE, yeah. there was this inflationary camp. And early in that. I was in that inflationary camp until I started learning what it means for a big powerhouse economy to mature. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. what happens if inflation were to get out of control, given um, average, if you will, speaking in LO terms, debt to income ratios for the American consumer in general, right. it can't really sustain inflation. And the Fed is just wildly more sophisticated than it was in previous eras where inflation became an issue. Yep. So I know that there's a lot of end the Fed type of folks out there, but most of those folks aren't your listeners. Yeah, yeah. We know that the Fed is there to try to help support the American consumer as part of their dual mandate. Right. And I think that they're doing the right thing. I'm still astonished that I saw a headline a couple of days ago that um, the 10 year note is quote unquote taking flight toward 1%. We're at 77 basis points today. I'm like, really? Like you're, you're, you're calling it taking flight if you get up to 1% on the benchmark 10 year? I'm like, come on, you know? Um, I think that uh, rates are going to kind of hang where they are. I think that, that our monetary policy is able to hopefully control inflation. And I'm not a revisionist and I'm always happy to eat those words. I say that all the time. So if anyone wants to come at me later when we have hyperinflation, 
I will eat yeah. those words with you and, and put my tail between my legs, but I don't see it at this point. I'm going to make a note now so I can at you on Twitter later. That's uh, right. <laughs> okay. Hey, let's, let's shift gears here for just a second. I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit about kind of how you've been doing, man. I know you're in uh, Northern California in the San Francisco area as, um, as we've gone through this, this pandemic, you and your family, and you recently put up a blog post that I really enjoyed. Uh, the headline was just, you know, question, are you burned out working 25 eight? So I'm assuming you're meaning 25 hours a day, eight days a week. Um, and is that, is that spring fever? Is, has COVID wrecked our work-life balance? Um, tell me a little about what, what prompted you to write that blog and, and a little bit kind of the points you were getting at there. Yeah, thank you. I, you know, I mean, basically, I, I think I had a statement somewhere in there that was like, I know you all relate and it's just a lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have a knock on wood, a very happy home life with my wife and my one child and we've we've had a wonderful time, but it does blend together. And I have felt like just this burnout. I was talking to one of my former top producers who's a big bank um, yesterday. I'm like, how you doing? And it's like, every deal is, every deal has all this hair on it, despite what you might think based on those two and a half, um, two and a half trillion that, that the industry will do this year. Yes, it's a ton of volume, but every deal is a bear. Um, you're at home, it does blend together, there's no lines, and it's just a lot. <laughs> so that's kind of why I wrote that. And I also wrote it because my child who's 11, he just finished fifth grade. Um, and, and he did his school did a good job. And I think he did a good job of, of, of getting used to like, okay, we're doing Google Classroom we're on a computer. And my wife and I were talking to him like, now you kind of see what it's like to be an adult. And yeah, man, it's a it's a grind to stare at a computer screen all day and try to stay focused and not have enough air, all that. So it's a, it's a going back to our first segment about yep, yep. like the, you know, the new nature of home. I still will take it, but I'm like many, I do thrive on being face to face with people. Um, and I know a lot of your audience does too. And that's the part that's, that's tough. And then um, some of the, you know, the, the, the social, uh, you know, issues that we've been um, now as a nation finally responsibly taking a look at yeah. uh, this year have, have added to that. Um, and same, I tried to talk to my 11-year-old mm -hmm. about what we expect about how we treat people mm -hmm. um, in our family and how we behave um, and that racism is not tolerated and hatred is not tolerated. And he got, he did get really upset because he is a child and I am not an educator. Right. Um, so I'm a little bit harsher about it. Cause I'm like, that's not how this is. And you need to know what happened to George Floyd. And, and I took it too far with him. And that's just an example of me trying to wrestle with all this stuff. Yeah. And it's, it's hard. It is. <laughs> you know, it's it is. Hard. It is really really tough. We've had the same things. Uh, you know, my two oldest sons uh, are both in elementary school. And so we talked to them about it. And um, it's one of the hardest conversations that you have to have because there's, uh, I don't know, you know, your son is 11. I'm sure you've experienced this. There's a certain amount of innocence that I think children have. Um, they haven't been jaded by what they've seen on media their whole life or what they see out of their, their government and so on and so forth. Even the bad examples we set for them as parents sometimes. And, um, and so when you have to 
to explain to them what's happening in the world, you have to really show them the ugly side of it to, and, and that's tough. But um, I think maybe for too long, we, we haven't done that. And that's what maybe has allowed some of the um, wrong standing things to just continue for generations is maybe we just haven't had enough of those tough discussions. So great little tidbit of advice. And thanks for being on the show today, man. We've really enjoyed having you and, and chatting with you through this stuff. Yeah, I love it. Like we said, we were overdue. So I'm happy to, happy to help in any way I can keep your audience up to speed on anything that they're not following already. Well, you've done a great job of that. Let them know where they can find you and follow you uh, online. Yeah. So the is the main, is the mothership and at the basis point on all social, definitely most active on Twitter. Very good. Um, you're a great follow. I'm on there too. Um, thank you again for listening. It's been great to have Julian Hebron from the basis point on the mortgage impact podcast. Um, it's been a great episode, like comment, share. Uh, we'd love to hear your feedback and we'll see you again next time. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Mortgage Impact Podcast. Take a second right now to subscribe so you don't miss any of our content. You can also check out the video version of our show on the Movement Mortgage YouTube channel. Movement Mortgage LLC supports equal housing opportunity and MLS number 39179. For licensing information, please visit www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org.